welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. Last month, we celebrated women working across the Tempest programme as part of International Women in Engineering Day. The contribution of women in defence and the transformation of women's roles during World War II are explored in a new book, Women in the War. Award-winning journalist Lucy Fisher, deputy political editor of the Daily Telegraph and previously defence editor of the Times, has written a vivid exploration of how the Second World War changed the lives of a group of 10 remarkable women, captured in her new book, Women in the War. In her own words, the surviving women of the Second World War spoke directly to Lucy about how they managed to innovate and use their intellectual and emotional resources to turn around what must have felt like insurmountable situations fraught with danger, trauma and stress. Her study isn't just a compendium of ingenuity and innovation, it offers memorable and affecting accounts of the moral courage shown by a generation of women fortified by a sense of a shared purpose to move forward together, strengthened by friendship and fellowship. Based on extensive interviews and including extracts from diaries and contemporary letters, the book describes how the bravery and resilience of these women paved the way for gender equality. Lucy joins us now to share their remarkable stories. So Lucy, why did you feel a sense of urgency in grasping the opportunity to speak to some of these trailblazers while there's still time to talk to them directly and record their stories in their own words? Well, um, it, it's precisely that because um, that this incredibly special generation um, of, of women um, are in the final um, years of their lives. The, the remarkable women um, I've interviewed for my book are aged between 95 uh, and a legendary 103. So I just felt it was really important to not only tell their stories, but to speak to them um, and have their voices foregrounded in the narration of their own tales. Um, a and B, I think it's interesting, um, while there have been, of course, many projects to capture um, the testimony uh, of people who, who played pivotal roles in the Second World War, I think the passage of time can allow for more reflection in a way. And, and certainly, um, I felt that from some of the women I spoke to, there was a real sense of, um, of honesty. Um, there's, you know, uh, they can look back. There's nothing um, left to prove. There, there are. There's no one they need to sort of protect um, by giving a glossed-over version of events. There was this real sort of rawness to the testimony um, I collected. Uh, and yes, as I say, um, the passage of time, the decades that have passed, have really allowed um, them to think about and process what happened to them, but also think about what it's meant for society at large, how um, how the role of women in the war changed things um, for the better um, in a, in a more permanent way, and, and led. To to some of the changes that we've seen in, in the intervening decades. And it was a time of incredible change in the society uh, because 7 million women were mobilised and about 450,000 of them were women in uniform, 500,000 were women in emergency services with civil defence. So, you know, it, it was a scale which had never been seen before of women changing their roles in society. For you, what have been the most affecting aspects of what you've learned from these women that have stayed with you, not just as a writer, but also as a journalist? It's a really good question. I, I think for me broadly, it's I was really moved by the sense of confidence um, that many uh, of the women I spoke to developed um, via their wartime roles. So everyone I've interviewed did a, did a different role. I've got you know um, people who are in, of course, the um, um, uh, the air transport. Uh, 
auxiliary in the um, Royal Naval uh, uh, Women's Royal Naval Service, in the uh, auxiliary uh, territorial service, but also land girls, um, someone who worked in a muni munitions factory, a whole breadth of experience um, and different types of uh, role. But the thing they had in common was they learnt a lot about themselves. It boosted their own self-belief to be able to be useful, move from having a more um, domestic, family-orientated role to feeling like they were really playing a part in the war effort, in society, outside the homestead. And yet I think that that has certainly um, paved the way for, for example, the um, subsequent battles for uh, equal rights. Um, certainly, you know, we saw that the First World War um, paved the way to women winning the vote. The Second World War laid the foundations for um, equal pay campaigns. We saw the first state-funded nurseries being introduced so that women could, you know, have, have childcare while they went out to work in, in the services or in the munitions factory. So, um, yeah, it, for me, it's that sense of, that sense of confidence that's really uh, affecting and also the sort of from the aspect of the social mores interesting to hear from women how they felt for the first time that that break from absolute deference to their parents um, was something that resulted from them having their own roles, having their own life, being able to go out, meet new friends, perhaps meet boys, boyfriends, um, later husbands. So that idea that you no longer um, had to be completely, uh, you know, in, enthralled to, to your family is also another aspect that, that really moved me, that people gain this sense of independence and autonomy. And that is such a fascinating theme, isn't it? Independence and autonomy, because after all, a Spitfire has only got one seat. So when they're being told, OK, we want you to take the Spitfire up into the air, they really have uh, to call on their own strengths, their own ability to cope with a situation they've never been in before to see them through. Well, that's right. And, and one of the stories I'm just so passionate about in the book is that of um, Jay Edwards, uh, who's 102. She's now living in Canada, but she is the last British-born Spitfire, uh, female Spitfire pilot um, who is still alive. And um, just remarkable listening to her tales about how she only had two hours of solo flying experience before the war, before she joined the Air Transport Auxiliary, uh, in which she delivered um, planes, all 20 types of plane in total she flew, delivering them from the factories to the front line, where, of course, they were used by the RAF. Um, but just an extraordinary sense of bravery from Jay that she was able to step up and take the reins, as, as you say, those, um, those single-seater aircraft, um, some of which had, had better safety records than others. Um, I, I was really fascinated um, to hear about that. And, and indeed, she, she wasn't without... Um, she, she, she didn't get off scot-free. There, there, there were a couple of prangs, as she called them, that she suffered. Um, so, yeah, I would, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll leave the details of that to, to people who want to read the book. But, um, but no, amazing courage and resilience from people who, who got in the hot seat like that. Just to give people a flavour of the sheer scale of uh, different disciplines and technology that you cover in the book, have you been surprised by the breadth of their contributions to defence, spanning everything from innovation to uh, their stoic ability to manage incredibly challenging situations that called on their personal strengths and qualities? So I'm imagining there is a, a huge glossary of different situations that you cover. Well, that's absolutely right. And um, as you say, it's, it's, the, it's the breadth of the challenge from the intellectual, and I'm thinking of um, 
Christian, um, a, a wonderful um, centenarian uh, who's based in London, who, who served in the Wrens. She was sort of um, plunged into a variety of roles, including um, a, as a plotter for the Battle of the Atlantic, but also she was put in charge of degaussing, um, trying to sort of prevent um, the, the mines um, being uh, blowing up um, the boats as they uh, sailed up the Thames. So that's a sort of, you know, she was parachuted into that role um, without any formal knowledge of how any of that technology worked and just had to get on with it. We move from that sort of intellectual challenge to the emotional challenges um, of often just being away from home for the first time was a real struggle for many people. And indeed, being sent overseas, and I think of um, Marjorie, who was attached to the special operations executive, sent out to Italy, um, and just extraordinary. She survived, um, you know, her convoy being torpedoed as, she, uh, as it set sail first for North Africa uh, and then on to the Mediterranean. And, um, yeah, I just think it, it is extraordinary that, you know, these women, up sticks, you know, set out from home, lived in dormitories with other women from other sorts of background, people they'd never met before, and took on all these challenges really in their stride. It, it, it really is um, a remarkable um, how little fuss um, they created that were really um, seismic challenges for the time. And in a way, they didn't really care about the resistance that there was to women being uh, mobilised in this way. They just wanted to fly or they wanted to drive trucks. They just wanted to get on with it. And it seems that because of that uh, spirit of liberty that it gave them, they left an imprint on society that you could argue exists today because it was the first time women were treated and paid the same and it was the first time they were uh, given that place in society do you do you can you sort of chart a thread going back from the second world war to today's defense environment where you see that they have we have a lot that we owe them for that well, that's certainly right, and I, I think it's important to say that it's true that there were some um, organizations and units where after some intense wrangling, um, we did see equal pay. In actual fact, um, many uh, many of the auxiliary female organizations that attach to um, or link to um, the, the sort of orthodox um, male branches of the services um, that have existed for a lot longer, in, in fact, some of those struggled to be granted full military status, and um, most women were paid um, significantly less than male counterparts in exactly the same role. So I think in a way it, it sowed the seed for those um, you know, equal pay campaigns because women felt so affronted that they were doing the same work to the same standard um, and putting in the same effort, the same hours and not being paid the same, that that, that did sow the seeds for that. But I think you're absolutely right. We do we do owe them um, an awful lot um, for their for their service and um, for their spirit um, while undertaking that service, and just proving, um, as many of the women said, that they were up to it. You know, at the beginning of the war, um, you know, politicians, you know, senior officials in the war office, you know, questioned whether women would would have the um, mental capacity or the emotional resilience um, to be um, as useful as they were. And it's really interesting to me to see, to, to see the way in which the sort of um, the small variety of roles they were offered at the beginning of the war, mainly kind of roles like drivers, orderlies, cooks, expanded as they showed that they were capable. Uh, and we saw them being offered more and more sophisticated roles as the war wore on. 
And bringing women's contribution right up to the present day to the Tempest programme, why do you feel the different perspectives and ingenuity offered through gender equality and inclusion and diversity as a whole is needed now more than ever to facilitate the best innovation? Well, I think really broadly for two reasons. Um, the first is sort of straightforward fairness. You know, it, it needs to be the case that we have equal opportunities because that's only that's only fair for that to be the case. But I also think from a more practical perspective, it's just important to have that cognitive diversity, that cultural diversity. You know, women do have, a, you know, different um, experiences, different perspectives, and that um, is absolutely vital in bringing new ideas, new angles to innovation. And is there any one particular individual who you met that has stayed with you as a, a journalist, in a sense, has, is, is somebody that you find uh, inspiring and that has spurred you on in some way? I have to say um, that there's one um, woman in my book, Marguerite, um, who um, was a nurse um, and happens to be my husband's grandmother, but that's, that's not, um, that's not <laughs> the reason I'm saying this who has such vivid, almost lyrical recollections of the war that as a journalist, when I kind of go about my daily job and try to be alert, when I think of the details that she picks up, picked up and can remember, the smell of lilacs in the garden as she looked up and saw planes flying overhead, um, her sense of her sensory recollections um, have really sort of encouraged me to be kind of really keen and on the ball as a reporter to try and take in as much of situations um, that I cover in my day-to-day -day job um, as she was able to do as a young woman in the war. Uh, looking forward to reading this book, Lucy. Where can we find it and when does it come out? It is out in September the 2nd, um, but it can be pre-ordered now. Um, it can be pre-ordered direct from HarperCollins or Amazon and, of course, all, um, all good bookshops. Lucy, thank you so much for telling us about your book. It sounds brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The Tempest programme has the potential to blaze a trail in sustainable aerospace innovation due to the tight-knit collaboration of its partners, BAE Systems, Rolls-Royce, Leonardo and MBDA. This has created a platform from which the latest research and techniques into new manufacturing processes, tools and fuels can be explored for the reduction of carbon emissions and the sourcing of new green technology. The UK government has set a target for industry to become net zero by 2050, and with COP26 later this year in Glasgow, there's a heightened focus on the UN's Race to Zero campaign. Before we look at some of the sustainable innovation being produced by Tempest, we hear from Matt Wong, Integrated Project Team Lead for Power and Thermal Management Systems at Rolls-Royce. Matt shares how he and his team in Bristol are using new techniques to bring Tempest into a new era of electrification. Matt, traditionally aircraft engines generate power through a gearbox underneath the engine, which drives a generator. Why is your electrical embedded starter generator such a game changer in terms of its use of space and the amount of power it provides? Um, so yes, we can see that future aircraft are going to require really unprecedented levels of electrical power. So that traditional approach you talked about of providing it all through a single gearbox basically becomes unfeasible. Uh, the gearbox itself is going to become really large. Uh, and it's going to be difficult to fit in the aircraft and the impact that that has on the performance of the engine is significant. This is one of the first times that you're actually putting two of the rotating shafts within the engine, is that right? There's always been two shafts with the engine but basically we're putting two electrical generators 
one on each shaft of the engine. And that allows us to take away the need for that big gearbox and all the losses that go with it. Um, and basically that enables us to provide those really high levels of power in the most efficient way. And I guess that's a challenge because it's new levels of power that you're managing to achieve. Uh, so what are some of the novel functions of your innovation, just in terms of the electrically powered complex systems? Yeah, so using these twin generators allows us to be much cleverer about um, the proportion of power that we take from each of the shafts on the engine. So that means that we can optimise uh, that during different parts of the flight in order to minimise the overall fuel consumption. And then once those generators are in place, we can provide lots of additional capabilities that we couldn't do before. So for example, we can load up the generators to help the engine decelerate faster. And conversely, we can then use them as motors and actually put power back into the engine to help it accelerate faster. So really improving the overall performance of the engine and the aircraft. And then we can think beyond that and look at things like maintenance operations. So uh, when the engine is on the ground, you can now use those motors to actually rotate the engine uh, and we can do things like automated inspections. So bringing some intelligence uh, to the way maintenance is done. And how will you give the pilot the ability to manage the supply of the power intelligently between all the different systems? So actually, we want the pilot almost to be out in the loop. We want all this to happen in the background without the need for the pilot to be involved. We're, we want to allow them to concentrate on flying the aircraft and the mission. So it's the system itself that's intelligent. It will need to communicate with all the other systems on the aircraft and potentially the systems on the ground as well, and then make real-time decisions about how to generate the power required, how to cope with large peaching demand, and then whether or not to sort of charge the onboard batteries or use the stored energy from them. So all that intelligence is being done by the system. Thanks to Matt for sharing details of his innovation. And now we're joined by Hannah Falberg, Transformation Programme Manager at Rolls-Royce, and Steve Hopkins, Head of Operational Capability BAE Systems, who are going to give us a wider ranging picture of just how Tempest partners are working together to break new ground in green innovation. So, Steve, in designing a programme expected to meet not only the operational requirements of the future, but also the sustainability commitments, Tempest offers a very unique advantage of providing access to advanced technologies and tech mindsets that could create trailblazers in industry. Can you share more about the work you're doing to push forward the boundaries of green innovation? Yeah, thanks, Abby. Uh, one of the key things we're trying to look at is how do we really exploit the benefits of the digital enterprise, the stuff that we take uh, into account in our day in, day in lives, which in the aerospace industry, particularly military aerospace, haven't been exploited to their fullest because of the lifetime of our programs. So many of our current aircraft were conceived in the early 80s and therefore been in uh, a period of development for 30, 40 years. What we're now trying to do is look at how we harness today's technology around the digital enterprise and use that digital information to really understand how we both develop, design, and then ultimately test and take to production our products. And that's into a whole number of areas that allows us to how we work together differently, how we share information, how we optimize our designs, how we minimize a lot of our physical testing. And I'll touch on that a little bit later. What we're also doing is looking at how we can, through our design process, not only look at manned aircraft, but also look at unmanned aircraft and bring those into a, a bigger integrated system. Hannah, describe how Rolls-Royce is approaching the theme of sustainability. 
So Rolls-Royce has always had a focus on efficiency and increasing the efficiency of our engines over time. And we'll continue to do that with looking at constantly trying to reduce that fuel burn. Historically, we've maybe done that more for a, a monetary value for our customers, but now we're continuing to do it for the, the carbon benefits that it brings. And we've also historically been really good at reusing uh, the materials that we build our engines with, making sure that rather than just replacing them, we are fixing them and reusing them time and time again. But what really makes now a really exciting time to get into the industry is we're doing more than that now. We're going past those, those realms. We've started really pioneering in the alternative fuels. And when I'm talking around alternative fuels, you've already heard from Matt talking around the electrification side of things. We're also looking into um, other sources such as hydrogen and more importantly for some of our high performing, high capability aircraft in the defence space and also within our civil space is the use of SAF, synthetic aviation fuel. Um, and what that really helps us to do is be net zero in that production of the fuel going through the system and making sure then we're still trying to increase the efficiency of the aircraft. So we're still trying to reduce the amount of fuel needed, but the fuel that's going to be used is fuel that is net zero. So it's taking the carbon out of the atmosphere and being able to just releasing that carbon back again. Um, one of the things that we're doing to really help support that is designing the aircraft for SAF, for that usage. And that's a really exciting time to be around. It means that we're continuing to develop new materials that make things lighter so you don't need as much fuel, but also making sure that it's optimised for those fuels because they've got very different composition from other hydrocarbons. For example, they don't have aromatics within them. Um, so it's things like making sure the seal systems are working for that. Um, one of the other things that's really exciting is we're not just designing for neutrality in the use of the aircraft, but we're also making our, our sites neutral in themselves so that they'll be net neutral in the production of these. And Bristol is really pioneering um, for Rolls-Royce in this field, and particularly in the UK. Overall, as a company, we're looking at um, venturing into these new markets and making sure that our whole site is net neutral by 2030. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time to be in the company and in the industry as a whole. And Hannah, energy is key when it comes to advancement of innovation because you're kind of judged in terms of the way that you use energy, the, the level of sophistication that you manage to achieve. It's not just the way you use it, though, of course, it's the fuel sources that you're choosing. And uh, you have been doing some pretty in-depth work in this area, haven't you? Yeah, so the fuel sources are, are really interesting. One of the things that excites everyone about the aviation industry is that it's pushing the realms of physics and we do it because it's really, really testing and difficult to do. Um, what that means is the fuel sources that we use have to be appropriate for the types of missions and the capability you want that aircraft to be able to deliver. So looking across the, the system and the different elements that we're looking at within Tempest, we might use different fuel sources for different components of that system, given the fact that we're striving for carbon neutrality through every aspect of the system, but recognising that the emissions come first. 
And so being able to pick the most appropriate fuel source to deliver the most carbon efficiency for that mission is critical. So, for example, we might choose to use something that maybe has to do a shorter duration with electrical uh, as its fuel source, mainly because its batteries are heavier. So therefore, it can't necessarily go as, as far but it might be the perfect and optimal solution for some of those smaller elements. So if we're talking around things like the wingmen, whereas when we're talking around the, the, the core platform, that's where SAF really comes into its own, because given the calorific content of kerosene and jet A, um, we really need to find something that's on par with that level in order for the missions that it needs to take to, to be able to deliver that. So we started looking at SAF as, a, as that alternative hydrocarbon source for those, those missions. But when we're looking at it, things like the way that you make SAF and you're not drilling anything out of the ground means that suddenly you're opening up the mission space and there might be other benefits um, for using that fuel source that we haven't ever been able to think around before, such as we don't need to take oil tankers across the, the continent in that logistics train. Maybe there's a way that you can start manufacturing these things closer to where you need to go um, and making sure that they are helping the wider economics. So if it's looking at plant production, where are you going to be placing those plants that enable jobs within areas that before maybe haven't had those opportunities. So it's a really, really interesting, diverse topic to start looking into and thinking around these different elements and benefits that you can get out of the system that's more than just carbon and what that can start unlocking for you from a mission basis and really trying to optimise the system. So this is where working as partners across us and BAE and yourselves at Leonardo and MBDA is really key making sure that we're delivering an optimal solution for, for the MOD and our other customers. And, you know, um, when you're dealing with this sustainable technology, you know, you've just reeled off a list of benefits. Uh, and there is also a sense that it's an exciting field of design in and of itself. So, Steve, can you describe how the sustainability mindset is being stamped on all the new design that you're aware of around you? So the Tempest mantra of the whole program is focused around achieving half the time and half the cost compared to traditional programs, previous programs such as Eurofighter Typhoon. And this radical challenge is driving us to really think about our approach to our products, our people, our tools and our processes. And the drive through all of this is to be more efficient, taking waste out of the system and being more sustainable. From a product perspective, recognising that our products often remain operation for 40 or 50 years, we recognise that 60% of that life cycle cost is attributed to the operation support phase of the programme. You, know, you put that in perspective, recent things such as the Consumer Rights Repair Bill you see being introduced by the government at present comes into a whole new dimension when you consider that we currently still support aircraft that were brought into service in the 80s, sometimes earlier. Therefore, we're very much looking at how our products can be more effectively upgraded and modified over the life of the programme and be able to build in those potential future requirements. We don't know what's around the corner. Who would have thought 10 or 15 years ago we would be tied to our iPhones uh, and such? Um, it was almost inconceivable, so we really can't guess what's around the corner. So it's very much around trying to make sure we're flexible enough that in that sustainable world, 
the world in which we live and operate will change. One other aspect to really bring this I find quite exciting is we've created across the Tempest program uh, an early careers network and that's very much involving apprentices and graduates from across our organisations, Rolls-Royce, Leonardo, MBDA, BO Systems and the MOD. Um, and they're adopting very agile approaches to their thinking and one of the things we're really finding is that they're taking up exercises such as looking at how we really exploit digital technology from their perspective benchmarking against other industries and sharing um, knowledge across the partners. And one particular area they're looking at at the moment is net zero. And what we're finding is, what I find quite exciting having been in this for a number of years, is bringing that fresh feeling of new thoughts of our young people. Could we get two benefits out of here? Not only do we get a different perspective to challenge our ways of thinking and bringing the perspectives from the younger people within our organisations, Concurrently, we're actually building a network of people at the start of their careers who are in a really good position and likely to work alongside each other for the years to come and grow. So therefore, people with a real focus on sustainability being brought up in that world are bringing that into the programme, making that a fundamental tenet of what we do and how we do it. And Hannah, in the work you're doing in sustainability and the design that you're involved in, is it a tweak or is it sometimes much more of a substantial process to achieve sustainability? Um, so sustainability in Tempest, we are looking at a new design of an engine entirely going through. So it's really exciting for our team to get involved into that. And it's giving us that step change in capability. Um, so what we're really thinking around in Rolls-Royce now is thinking of the life of the aircraft and, and how that's going to be managed in the most sustainable way. So really making sure that the design that we're doing is considerate of the way it's going to be operated and the fact that no one can predict the future so building in some of that flexibility um, for that operational design one of the things that is really important to think around in that design phase is we're talking around spiral and being able to spiral for capability but by doing that and improving efficiency we're also spiraling for sustainability of the aircraft and knowing that at the initial design phase that we're currently in is really groundbreaking for the way that we can start considering our design options to us um, and how do we start thinking around building something that's going to evolve through its life rather than be static on, on that entry into service and that's very very exciting um, and then considering the way it might interact um, with, the, with the rest of the system. And Steve, Hannah's been touching there on elements of spiral innovation. Are there any areas of green innovation that you're researching or exploring right now that are taking you into very exciting territory that's almost like the realm of sci-fi? Yeah, I think one of the realms that's really tasting that that I find really, really interesting, really exciting, is how we're trying, now exploiting virtual augmented reality. Uh, and that's through all phases of the design life cycle and manufacture process. So if you imagine this, a world where you start off and you design a product and view it in a 3D world, then the ability to take those individual elements and assemble them in that same virtual world and immerse yourself in that world, take that product into a virtual factory and be able to walk around that factory and even try assembling that product uh, many times before anyone really gets to it. So as a, as a new starter into the program, someone, whether that's an apprentice coming in brand new or whether it's someone who's transferred into the program, they can actually 
live that product, live that program all the way through to the point where when they actually start making it, they're, they're familiar with the products and the processes. And then you think the next stage on from that, the end user, the pilot, is ability to test and fly this product in a synthetic environment. So therefore, now we've got the potential, the ability to, in a whole virtual world, go through from the initial ideas and concepts, looking at different ideas. I said earlier by Hannah, whether that's through um, manned aircraft, unmanned aircraft, and how they work together, how the products and the system work, how the parts are designed, how they're assembled, how they're operated and taken into service. Uh, and Hannah, what are the things that you're doing right now where you think this is really at the cutting edge? <laughs> Um, well, I think the digital twin space that has just been discussed by Steve is really groundbreaking and really sci-fi. It's that kind of thing that you would have expected to see on a sci-fi movie in the 90s is now something that we're generating and building where we can almost live the life of the product um, from start to finish and really understand where those pitfalls are that we then want to change in the design to avoid them ever occurring in the future. So things like availability um in in service and making sure that we're designing and delivering at the right pace and cadence for, for that sort of thing um the SAFs world is actually very sci-fi to me um it's it's very groundbreaking the idea that we no longer need to drill into the ground and receive oil that is something that historically we could only dream of and we're at the dawn of this new environment and where we can start building these and manufacturing these fuels um, in order for us to use them and the fact that we're now designing our engines in order to be optimized for them is, is amazing that we're designing them for SAF is a really sci-fi groundbreaking place to be and it makes me very very excited to be working in the company at, at the moment and working on Tempest in general, the fact that this is an opportunity to really um, move the whole industry into a much greener world and be part of the solution in making sure that we're in net zero for, for 2050. Steve and Hannah, thank you very much for helping us understand more about sustainability on Tempest today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Join us again for the next episode of Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. Mm-hmm.